You're listening to Gender Ed, a podcast created and hosted by Virginia Tech's Women's Center. Join us in celebrating the experiences, achievements, and diversity within our campus community. Our conversations will explore the intersection of gender and other identities and cover topics on leadership, equity, well-being, and healthy relationships. Conversations in this episode may cover a range of topics such as asex and gender, sexual violence, and other forms of gender-based violence and harassment. While I hope to have meaningful and relatable conversation, this podcast is not intended to provide therapy, legal counsel, or specific advice for meeting your unique needs around coping with personal or community trauma and discrimination. To report a bias incident, please contact the Dean of Students Office at 540-231-3787 or use the reporting form found at dos.vt.edu. If you are in need of identity-based support, connect with the cultural and community centers at ccc.bt.edu or 540-231-8584. If you have questions, concerns, or needs related to your mental health and well-being, please contact Cook Counseling at 540-231-6557 for more information. You can also make an appointment for advocacy at the Women's Center via email to wcsupport at bt.edu or contact our office Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. at 540-231-7806. Welcome. You're listening to Gender Ed, a production of the Women's Center at Virginia Tech. I'm your host, Katie, and I'm here with my colleague, Ashley. Thanks for joining us today for our 12th episode. We are talking with Jimmy Boyd Keys, the founder and CEO of CBK Enterprises. Jimmy, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you start us off by sharing with our listeners about who you are um, and what you do? Sure, Um, and I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I am, in a nutshell, a racial and gender equity consultant. And um, in a longer way of explaining, I have um, my own business and I have um, clients who are mostly campuses, some nonprofits, and also a few corporations who are looking to figure out how to have intersectional approaches or to create more inclusive environments. And so they um, employ me to have um, you know, a strategic planning process or to train folks who are part of their organization, or um, you know, it could be just to ask questions and get advice. And so um, I like to just work with lots of different groups of people around ways that they can create equitable environments. That's awesome and such admirable, admirable work. Um, and here at the Women's Center, we are working with you as well. And so um, I know that many of our staff members knew you previous to um, us contracting with you, but we are super excited to work with you um, to review the work that we do and our strategic plan and making sure that we're meeting the needs of our community. So happy to have you on this podcast to get to know you a little bit more, um, but also to continue to work with you throughout the semester. Um, so to help our audience get to know you a little bit better, Uh, We do like to do an icebreaker or a get to know you type of question. And given that we are in the middle of Sexual Assault Awareness Month, which is the month of April, can you tell us a little about a Sexual Assault Awareness Month event um, from years past that stands out as particularly meaningful in your memory? Absolutely. So um, 11 of my 18 years in higher education was spent directing university women's centers. And so I was the founding director of a women's center at a historically black university. And so my very first year um, there um, for Sexual Assault Awareness Month, of course I had a paradigm coming from a predominantly white institution that, 
you know, this is what you do for Sam and this, you know, so we were going to do Take Back the Night. So the students, you know, and Take Back the Night is a march and then usually, you know, a way for people to convene and talk and that kind of thing. And the students told me, um, they called me Miss Boy Keys. They said, Miss Boy Keys, we don't want to march. We're tired of marching. We've been marching for generations and we just want it to be something else. And people always tell us that we need to march for Take Back the Night, but we don't want to do that. And that was really eye-opening for me because again, my paradigm was from predominantly white institution and that's what you do, right? And so I said, okay, great. So tell me what should Take Back the Night look like? And so they decided they wanted to do a spoken word event. And so it was Take Back the Night, the spoken word edition. And so people just got up and people brought poems that they created. Some people just got up and spoke, you know, um, you know, just from their heart. Some people sang, but it was amazing. And it just opened my eyes, even as a black identified person, I was like, oh, we don't have to do that this way. We can do it our way. And so that's what Take Back the Night always looked like at the HBCU um, that I worked with every Sam. That's such a cool story. I love when students influence, like get to directly influence the work that we do. Of course, everything we do is for them and geared towards them. Um, but as it evolves to meet the needs of our unique students, um, it's such an important thing to keep in mind. Um, and it makes our events and our programs so much more successful. So that's such a cool story. And I love, I love the spoken word concept for Take Back the Night too. So maybe we can adopt that here potentially. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so thanks so much for um, introducing yourself and sharing a bit about um, some of your history um, with our Get to Know You question. But as we really um, dive into this conversation, you now work as a consultant and educator independently, but you have a long history in the work of violence prevention. Can you tell our audience a little bit more about how you got started in this work and what keeps you passionate about it today? My work in gender-based violence actually started um, really long time ago, back in 1998. So I identify as a secondary survivor. My best friend is a survivor or one of my best friends. And um, she um, went through, she was hospitalized and um, she went through a process um, that included um, working with the local crisis center and also a criminal justice process. And the criminal justice process took two years. It was a lot of continuances, a lot of trying to intimidate her. It was just horrible. But the advocate for the crisis center was there with her every step of the way. So both of us would sit beside her in the courtroom every time she had to stare him down. And um, when I saw the difference that an advocate can make in someone's life, I said, oh, sign me up for that. I've got to start volunteering. So I started volunteering for local crisis center and just continued that work as a volunteer hospital response hotline that kind of stuff and then that morphed into seeing oh you can actually do this for a living and so i was already a higher ed person and so the work that happens at women's centers was just exactly what it was a, a, a hybrid of those two interests that i had right higher education and doing gender-based violence advocacy. And so that's kind of how I moved into women's center work. And so um, I continued to do that um, throughout my career. And then I started doing consulting. So um, this has always been near and dear to my heart 
you know, personally, and she's doing well, by the way, um, and, and thriving and on a great path of healing. But personally and professionally, this is all I know and all I really wanted to do, even though it's taken different iterations. And so um, even though I do work um, not just on gender-based violence, but just looking at racial and gender equity in general, um, it's all connected as we know. And so I can't see myself doing anything else but this. This is who I am. Yes. I, to your point here about these things being connected, right? We just had um, on our last podcast, a really great conversation with our LGBTQ um, plus resource center director about how um, celebration of culture, expanding inclusion um, and um, um, increasing respect and support for folks, um, including folks who are marginalized based on identity is actually violence prevention work, right? When we, when we create spaces where folks are um, able to be their full human selves and respected as their full human selves, um, then we create an environment where they're less likely to be dehumanized and harmed, right? And so I love that you talk about these things being um, the same, right? They're all a part of the circle here when we're talking about um, change. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I always say that sexual violence advocacy is um, racial justice work, is economic justice work, is immigration rights advocacy. All of those things are sexual violence prevention work. Yes. So Ashley touched on a little bit earlier that um, you're working with um, the Women's Center at Virginia Tech this year as a consultant on our race and equity review of our work. And I know you've worked with other entities and institutions on similar topics. Why is it important to be focusing on the intersections of race and gender in the work of gender-based violence advocacy and prevention? How much time do you have, right? <laughs> um, okay, so it's important for all the reasons that you just mentioned, that if we're trying to make sure that people in organizations feel valued and want to stay, and feel like their work matters, we have to make sure that their environment is equitable in, in big and little ways, right? So the, the individual and personal interactions as well as the policies and the systems that those organizations are built on or built within. So um, what's interesting with the organizations that I work with is that there's a, a really a broad, um, um, continuum of the types of organizations and the understanding that they have around equity. So some organizations are really doing great work and they kind of, um, they know the language, you know, um, they're, they're woke, as you might say, but at the same time, the people that are within the organization feel marginalized. And it's really interesting to watch that. It's like, okay, you're doing all this great work. You have the, you know, the right marketing, you have the right language, but for some reason, your house is not in order. And so those organizations, I really have particular interest in working with because that's like a deeper dive, right? Figuring all of that out because you have all the, um, the knowledge on a surface level, have read lots of books, participated in um, groups, discussion groups, you know, done all that work, but for some reason it's not penetrating into the day-to-day -day operations of how you um, do your work. And then on the other part of that continuum are folks that are like, really don't understand 
why it's problematic to say to someone, oh, I love your accent, um, where are you from? And the person is from New Jersey or whatever, right? Um, they really don't understand why it's not okay to say to someone, oh, your hair is really interesting, can I touch it, right? So it's, you know, that basic stuff that most people would be like, of course, you don't say that to someone, right? That's, that's um, very um, offensive. And so those folks are really working on basic levels. Like, you know, they feel like if I'm not saying, you know, a derogative term, if I'm not saying the N word, then we're good. We're not racist. We're not, you know, creating an inequitable environment in any way. And so those are interesting to work with on a whole different level. So you're just doing basic stuff with them. But I enjoy being able to at least provide some, you know, um, framework for them. So those organizations that I work with really cross the spectrum. And what's so interesting is, um, you know, me being from North Carolina, you all being based in Virginia, the South gets a really bad rep around this stuff, right? But I do this stuff all over the country. And I'm telling you, you get that same kind of talk and discussion in New England as you do on the West Coast right? It's in the Midwest, it's all over. So yeah, the South has a certain history that needs to be reckoned with, but these kinds of missteps, these, this lack of understanding, this lack of being able to actually pull intersectional work and equitable work into the fabric of what you're doing is really across you know, every spectrum, every organization in this country in some way, shape or form. You're, you're so needed. Like everything that you're saying is like, it's such a broad spectrum of lack of understanding to the point of, and then to the opposite end of understanding, but not how, knowing how to do. I think, especially this past summer with everything that went on, um, there's a lot of people who are reading more, who are researching more, um, who are trying to have more conversations about topics that are really important. Um, but their reading doesn't always and most often doesn't translate into action. And so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts, and especially as we're thinking about universities and you're doing the review with us, um, how, why women centers maybe in particular struggle with knowing the issues, being concerned about the issues, but not being able to really do the work to meet those needs of our community members? Sure. Um, it's because of how they began, right? So I always say, um, you know, and I, you all know about this, I do an origin stories activity because how you start really informs how you continue to do work. If whether you realize it or not, I mean, you know, I'm, I have a psychology background. So just to get in that out for a second, we could grow up a certain way and have certain influences in our lives. And even if we know that those influences are not good and we decide consciously to reject those influences, or those ways of teaching, they still have um, a um, bearing on how we make decisions and how we move in the world. And recognizing that is so important. And so the same way as you would say in child psychology that that works, that's how organizations work. As they're born, the circumstances around how they're um, created, who creates them, why they're created, how they're funded, how they're originally structured, um, have bearing on how they look today. And so most women's centers were began by um, white women, often white affluent women who are responding to a crisis that's happened in a community who've decided we're going to fund this by calling in people that 
have influence and have money and they're going to help us do what we need to do. And we're going to do this in a way that is structured around how we know feminist um, frameworks operate. And so that's how they're built. And that's all folks knew to do, right? And so if that's the way it was set up, whether you realize it or not, it influences everything. It influences how you hire. It influences even how you meet, how you communicate. Everything ends up having a um, white identified structure. And I know this to be true besides just living as a black woman, but also working in an HBCU, going there the way they do things is just different because culturally it started out in a different way. Even the way you start meetings and the way you move through meetings is different than the way it was when I was at a, a predominantly white institution. That was like really eye-opening for me because I'm like, well, I'm black. I've been black all my life. So why is this like, why did I know this? But it was something that was so obvious to me, how you begin matters. And so women's centers, they began the way they began, right? You can't change that. But I think what has to happen is besides all this reading and, you know, discussion groups and all that, which is great, you know, you have to self-educate. You have to go back and figure out how you started and what's influencing you now and how you can pivot from that. And that sometimes is hard because there's a lot of people who were there from the beginning and they feel like that's their baby. And to change the baby or say that the way the baby was brought up wasn't okay is very, very difficult. And that requires a whole lot of humility. And so for some people, they, you know, not maybe overtly, but covertly work against it. And so until women's centers can do that, it's going to continue to be, you know, white identified people or people that maybe are not white identified, but come from that framework, continuing to just do the work. And maybe they get a little input from the community, but they haven't really structurally changed who they are. Yes, that's such a helpful perspective. I think this is a really important point you bring up about structure, right? Because Structure influences everything. And, and we might think it's um, pretty small. Like for instance, um, on a PWI, we have the mandates from um, guidance from the White House, previous White House task forces and um, from VAWA and from um, current Title IX regulations that we need to do certain kinds of prevention. And there's even a, um, an emphasis on um, using what we would consider evidence-based prevention efforts, right? Um, but that structure in and of itself, um, although it's really well-intended, it's, it's intended to do things that we think we have data that, that they work, right? Who they work with, who they work for, what um, kinds of work gets funded to get studied to have that evidence base is not equitable. And so when we think about like this deeply embedded structure of like how we do this work on a college campus, like that stuff is underlying the decisions we make, right? Absolutely. I mean, you just, you know, like the song, um, Killing Me Softly with, with her song, it, you just strummed my pain with your fingers because that's exactly what I am going through with my own bystander intervention program. Um, it's focused on communities of color. It comes from my perspective as a black identified person. So obviously it has a strong um, 
component of what it means to be Black. And um, it's considered a promising practice by OVW as well as um, NASPA, which is a student, one of the student affairs professional organizations. But I had to fight for that, right? Because I am not a um, program that has, or my program is not one that's had major research funding. And the question that they would always ask me is, where's your data? How do you know that this works? And I would say, well, I have my evaluations that folks do after every training. Oh, but that's not valid. That's not reliable. And I'm like, do you understand that that requires major grant funding and, you know, academics who are focused on research and want to take the time to do this type of work so that I can basically be, um, you know, real or validated in your eyes. And I know of programs that are like that, you know, programs that focus on marginalized populations that someone just kind of put together and they did a good job and maybe there's room for improvement. You're right, there's no program that's perfect, but those are invisible to structural powers. They don't get um, lauded. They don't get recommended to folks. What gets recommended is, and I won't say the names of them, but the ones that are majorly funded who are usually very unapologetic about not focusing on marginalized identities, not being focused on oppression, won't even speak that word in any of their trainings. And I've even asked the question to some of them, why don't you talk about um, bystander intervention from the perspective of someone who has you know, all these other risk factors in front of them that white identified people don't have. And they just say, well, I don't, I don't need to do that. That's not what my program's about. And I don't need to do it because we're considered one of the best. And so when that's said and understood, it's like, okay, this is what's going to get perpetuated. This is what campuses are going to adopt and do. And so that's fine. What I decided to do is just keep doing what I do, which is um, offer what I offer and the people that really know that they need to be doing more than just, I'm going to say the mainstream for lack of a better word. Um, people that know they need to be doing more um, seek out um, my bystander intervention program and others like this. It's, it's got to happen because I remember, and I, I know um, I'm talking long about this, but I did a training one time. I will never forget this. It was in Atlanta. And at the end of the training, um, the person who brought me, Black identified woman, um, stood up and was just crying so hard. I mean, just what they call the ugly cry, right? Just so completely touched because she said, this is my story. It's like, nobody has ever talked about what, and this person did prevention work, you know, had been, you know, knows all the terms and is very well versed in this. And she said that this is something that no one has ever spoken to. It was always this missing piece, this gap. Every time I trained, every time I saw these types of programs and she said, thank you. And what she doesn't know, I need to let her know that she had this impact on me is that that's what really keeps me going. That kind of reaction, knowing that there's a huge void for people and they need something. So um, I just keep doing what I'm doing. So my program is called About That Life. And um, I just, it, it will always be there. It will always be there.
I'm really glad to, to hear about those, those positively impactful experiences and that positive feedback that again, um, you know, this is hard work for anyone like period. It's hard work to be involved in violence response um, and prevention um, for a number of reasons. And it's particularly difficult when you add the layers of multiple marginalization to that work. So being um, a female identified person who is in a space who is also queer or is also right. And, and the word is also even like positions that weird, right? Because I'm all these things at once. And so I know for me, coming into spaces and having these conversations that really um, say and name that they are inclusive, like, oh, we have a, we have a scenario that uses they pronouns. So you don't know who it is, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And that kind of, um, that kind of um, treatment, that kind of um, to almost tokenization in, in the narrative of violence prevention is so common. Mm -hmm. And yet um, the structures, like you said, you're a higher ed person, right? The structures of higher ed, particularly working on these issues, um, feed us and push us to um, continue to work in those ways and reward us actually uh, for continuing to work in those ways when it comes to that research frame and that um, grant funding, right? Um, the, when you apply for grants, you have to say who it would help, right? And so like if the population of people who it would help is a small population in a given campus or community, right? Or um, it's just it kind of the, the layers and layers of how, um, how difficult this work can be to, to maintain and the fact that um, you are still here doing it um, after 15 plus years, I think just um, thank you for staying with us um, and being here to, to work with folks like our Women's Center um, and to, to keep um, improving, to keep um, pushing that bar forward. Oh, thank you. That's really kind. That's really kind. I have to say that it's, I don't know if easier is the right word, but it, there is more of an interest in this kind of work because of all the visibility with, um, you know, racial justice protests and, you know, changing of administrations, presidential administrations and that kind of thing. So, you know, people are at least more interested in it, whether they're going to actually change remains to be seen, but um, that's a good thing. So we were just talking about um, your bison intervention program, and you're still one of the only people that I know of who has developed a program um, specifically for the, to meet the needs of the Black community, um, whether that's at PWIs or HBCUs. Um, and let's just continue this conversation. Aside from these structural pieces, what are the other um, components that create this huge gap um, in the work of violence prevention, given that we know, right, the data says, and we can, and a lot of folks use the language of, well, prevention is all these other things. Like, what else drives um, these gaps? This is just, you know, the world according to Chimmy, but I think that part of what drives the gaps is that um, we in this work have to understand that we are part of the system of oppression. And for people who have done this work from the standpoint of, I just wanna help people, which is a lot of folks, right? They have to reckon with the idea that we can be complicit in oppression. That, you know, even someone like me who identifies as a black woman, I'm also heterosexual, right? I'm also um, able-bodied, I'm also cisgender. So. There are, you know, places of privilege I have in my identities that I can absolutely 
be an agent of oppression. And so for me to, you know, admit that, reckon with that, come to terms with that, that's hard. That's hard for anybody. And so for folks who are doing violence prevention work, you want to always be on the side of, you know, I'm the superhero, I'm helping, I'm doing these things. But really intersectional work is saying, you know what, my stuff's still real jacked up. And I still have to work on my, my things. And I'm part of this problem. I'm part of this um, reason why violence happens. I'm still, I'm working, I'm trying to get better, but I'm still doing some things that are perpetuating this. Every time that I am enjoying my privilege and not thinking about what it means to have this or do that when others are not able to move in those spaces or have that entree, I'm a part of the problem. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody doing violence prevention work wants to make those kinds of um, discoveries want to reveal those things about themselves. And so until people are able to like really get down to bare bones and really expose themselves in those vulnerable ways and figure out how they are actually part of the system, we can't dismantle the system, right? Because, um, you know, the saying is you can't, um, you can't dismantle um, the master's house with the master's tools. And that's what we keep trying to do. Right. And um, I remember, um, and this is, you know, connected many, many years ago, I used to have these, you know, disagreements with advocates, well-meaning people who care about this work, who've been doing it for a long time. When I talked about the fact that accountability has to look different, right, that we can't just keep focusing our, our work on, you know, creating these um great um, relationships with law enforcement that um, the way or the path to healing is for someone to get an arrest and a conviction and put somebody away for a long time and the survivor is going to feel like justice was done right and so you know they would say we've been spending 30 years trying to build up these relationships and you're telling me that this stuff doesn't matter and we would get in these arguments about this and so I think that Things like that, that's an example of why this prevention work is a real struggle because people cannot go there to think that the, some of the stuff I was doing was actually part of the problem is very, very difficult for people to admit and to um, come to terms with. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, you've got me thinking about myself, right? Um, that. I, I walk into rooms and I tell people I know it means something that I, on Virginia Tech's campus, um, that my title is gender-based violence prevention person um, and that um, I am who I am, that I am a white, cis passing um, queer person um, who is like now middle class and um, comes from a particular environment and comes from a religious background um, and, and all these things. Um, but saying those things to your earlier point about we a lot of people know the language but how do we change um the result and the outcome um it's it's different 
right? It's one thing to walk into a room and say, I want to be an ally. It's another thing to email someone and say, here's what I'm doing, you know, um, <laughs> right? To show up and, and do the work um, or to really offer tangible support and resources or really change what you're doing in ways that aren't just changing the scenarios language, but also like including representation in a meaningful way. Like in those statistics we use, like one in four and one in five, um, but not talking about, um, you know, the disproportionate rates at which women of color um, experience violence or, or those pieces of the work um, and not talking about them in a meaningful way, right? Talking about them um, and using words like oppression and violence, um, even if it's just sprinkling it in there to try to, to, try to um, engage with an audience that may or may not be at that level or at that place of using those words, but to make those connections within for folks um, that this work, if you wanna be in violence prevention, you have to be in violence prevention, right? You can't just say, well, I wanna prevent sexual assault when it happens in these circumstances. Right, you have to say, I want to prevent violence and harm from happening to people, period. Um, and I think that's a, a whole mindset change for, like you said, how people often come into this work, um, let alone do it as they're in the field. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's exhausting for people. They're like, I spent all of my energy doing this gender-based violence prevention work. Now you're telling me I have to think about immigrant rights and I have to think about you know, LGBTQ plus rights. And yeah, you do. <laughs> That's exactly right. If you say you're going to do this work. And so we're going to continue to have people that just want to help people. And that's a, that's a category where people are going to stay. And then there's folks who are going to move beyond that. And those are the people that I try to work with the most. Curious about other common themes and topics that are, um, when you do this work as a consultant, that you share with folks that are consistently surprising to them? Um, and why um, is this a surprise to folks? Um, and what steps do you maybe share to start addressing those types of issues in the work? Um, so some of the things that are surprising to folks, um, the law enforcement piece is always a surprise to several people in the room that people don't always see law enforcement as uh, safe, and reliable and, you know, our first or second go-to. Um, I have literally had people, you know, deviate for 20 or 30 minutes in a training, like really want to talk about that because they were like, I always thought of that as being, you know, friendly and great. And that was, you know, so that's, that's a big one. Um, another one is um, just the idea that someone who has certain um, identities carry privilege. It's interesting that people struggle with that because, um, and I have been confronted sometimes in talks where someone says, you don't know my life. My life is really hard. It's very challenging. And you're trying to say that I have privilege. And so people really struggle with like what privilege is about. The privilege is not about your life being easy. It's not about the fact that you don't have hurdles and obstacles in your way. The privilege is about a system or a society that's structured so that you get the benefit of the doubt automatically, right? That you have entree in the things that other people don't have entree into. And then I try to give just like kind of regular real world examples so that people can kind of see like maybe how you overlook privilege, but people think of privilege is almost, almost from an economic standpoint, like that means that 
you know, I have people who cook for me and I have someone that drives me to school every day or to work every day. They can't really wrap their mind around what privilege means from a standpoint of systemic inequality. So that's another sticking point that I uh, come across. And then let me think of um, a third, oh, I know. The third one is probably the, but I mean well syndrome. Um, people get really caught in that. And I have to be really sensitive to that because there are a lot of well-meaning people who walk around trying to be nice to everybody, trying to love everybody. And it's really difficult for folks to hear what I'm saying sometimes when they fall into that category. Because again, as I mentioned earlier, realizing that you are part of the system of oppression, that you are an agent, that you perpetuate these things in your niceties is very difficult for people because that's a complete life pivot. You spend all your time being good and nice and you, you give to people all the time, you're generous, you do stuff, right? That matters. And then somebody is telling you that's not enough, that that does not remove you from being complicit in this oppressive system. That's hard for people to unpack. And I've had people stay afterward, like when we were doing things um, you know, in person to like really talk with me about that because they struggle. You know, their best friends are queer and their best friends are people of color and you know, those kinds of conversations where they're like, but I don't get it. I don't understand why you're telling me these things and I just don't agree. So I would say those were like the top three that I see a lot show up for people, which I think is really just a microcosm of just kind of how the country and maybe the world is operating and why this work is so hard. And I'm not saying that I do it perfectly, but I, I feel like I take feedback well. And so when people challenge me and say, this is not okay and, you know, when you said that, that was problematic. I, first of all, I apologize, you know, and I say, you know, I'm going to try to pivot. I'm going to try to do this in a different way. And thank you for waking me up to that. And I think that's how you have to operate in the world um, so that you can continue to get better. We're all trying to figure this thing out. Yeah, I love that. I think that's something that I've also been trying to do better about. I used to be super defensive of like, well, I meant well, or whatever the case may be, but it doesn't matter what I meant. It's how it was received. And so as people who are in this space and in this work of like, we want to be continuous learners, but that also means not just continually learning in the research and looking into how we can better for our campuses. How can we be better as ourselves and taking that feedback as someone took the time to also correct you, um, which takes a lot of energy um, and is really thoughtful as well. And so just being accepting of that, like, like you said, apologies, apologizing of, I'm so sorry, like I had no idea or I didn't realize um, because oftentimes a lot of us have people who are of the LGBT community or people of color or disabled in our lives, but they, as we talk about all the time, they're not a monolith. Um, these communities are not a monolith. And so just because we may have had feedback from one person doesn't mean that that can be applicable to everybody. And that's something that's really important for us to remember as we are doing this work and especially doing our outreach and engagement with our students, so. Absolutely, it's really, really important. And this is hard work and it's a process, it's a lifelong process. You're never gonna get it. I always say that the scariest person is in the world is someone that thinks they're woke and done, right? I mean, it's a waking up is really what it is more to me than being woke.
you really um, have covered a lot of ground in what you've shared. And um, I hope provided an, some insight to folks. You know, on our campus, we work with a lot of folks across campus who um, want to play a part, play a role in ending gender-based violence, and whether that's as a volunteer or a student intern or a peer educator or a faculty staff partner or colleague, right, who are on our committees or who are showing up at 9 p.m. to talk to a student org or whatever that looks like. And they see that small slice of prevention and, and get that um, particular perspective of what I'm actually telling them is one way you can help, right? But I really, really um, appreciate and hope our listeners also find value in this perspective that you've opened up around um, understanding prevention more fully and from a different lens, a different angle, um, from a less narrow scope of this is the one um, thing that you can do tonight, um, but how, encouraging folks to think more about um, what we can all do in terms of personal work, right, as well as professional work um, to create more inclusive environments and to prevent violence and harm um, when it comes to um, the intersections of race and gender particularly, but also, right, all these other intersections of identity. Absolutely. And um, if I could give uh, one thing you could do um, for your, your listeners, um, I think one way is to, we're going back to that humility piece, is just um, recognize how much space you're taking up in the room, how much energy you're um, taking up in the room and recognizing your privilege around that. Sometimes little things like that um, and that, that will give some space for folks who are part of marginalized identities to have a voice. Um, it doesn't mean you're going in there and trying to take over and tell them, here, you speak, you go do that, right? And trying to push them out there. But what you're doing is you're saying, I have privilege around, you know, asking all these questions or um, trying to be in charge or always offering my thoughts and my opinions. Let me step back for a second and see what happens. And you may see that some other folks who are normally invisible speak up or um, get noticed or someone reiterates something that they said. And so that's a, a, a easy thing to do. Just step back. Don't take up so much space. Recognize your privilege in taking up the space and just analyze that all day, every day. And you'll start to notice some things. So that's what I want to share with your, your listeners. Wonderful. Well, thanks again um, for joining us today. Um, we, I know I've certainly enjoyed, um, we've enjoyed our conversation with you immensely and we hope that our listeners do too. So Chimmy, um, I know you've been working with the Women's Center um, and you've talked a little bit about some of the programs that you've developed and, and you offer. Um, can you share a little more with our audience about how they could learn more about your work or where they could get in touch with you? Absolutely. You can just go to my website. It's just chimmy.biz. So C-H-I-M-I dot B-I-Z. And um, it'll tell you about all the programs and services that I offer. My TEDx talk is on there if you wanted to watch that. So um, yeah, I'd love to hear from folks if anything I do can be helpful to you. So thank you so much. This has been episode 12 of Ginger Ed, a podcast from the Women's Center hosted by Katie and Ashley. Thank you for listening and we hope that you join us next time.